This is Being Human. I'm Richard Atherton, Oddie Ashine, coach, leader, father. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Oddie, um, so let's so let's start by way of introduction to say that you are a, a specialist in in coaching people around around leadership uh, yeah. and leading programs that bring out leadership qualities in others. Um, and there are various facets of of the way that you work in the leadership realm that I'd love to explore in this in this podcast. Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> so the first one for me, I think that, that that I've learned from you. We've worked together for a while now. Yeah. Is this the importance of listening when it yeah. comes to to leadership? So could you could you talk more about that? Um, listening. Yep. Yeah. Well, we do say that's the most powerful tool you actually have, and you can take several angles. One is that as a leader, you are a busy person. And it turns out that if you really, really, truly listen in a way that the other person gets your listening, you can get connection to that person much quicker. You can open up the space for that person to really tell you what's going on for them and what they want to bring to the table because they get that if you really listen, the judgment and opinionation that happens is reduced down, if not gone. So there's much more space to just put things straight on the table and you get a lot more value from it in that sense so every part of your day is much more effectively spent and especially in these days when you have kind of fast-moving organizations complexity is all over the place unpredictable outcomes you need to create an environment where people can just get straight to the point fast and get very clear what's so and not so so from that kind of almost selfish leader point of view is extremely valuable tool but also it allows you to connect to people what's kind of what's important to them what's really going on so you can get that connection that's required if you want to be up for something exciting together if you need more than people just obeying orders if you really want to connect so that you can ask them things that potentially go kind of beyond what you would normally ask in their roles, take an extra step up, do something out of the ordinary that's going to be required. And kind of finding that connection quickly can only happen through listening. Not being heard is upsetting and it creates distance between people. Mm. And so, and what are the, the main ways in which people can, you know, to use your term there, get, get that listening, get the listening of others? Um, it is an extremely good question because... As most people, if they just try to kind of be quiet for a second, we have this live commentary in a head that has an opinion about everything we do. Even I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you now. So given that that goes on in every human being's head that I have met, kind of how to get somebody's attention and the listening you are looking for is a bit of a dance and an art form. And probably the most accessible tool is to start by listening if you want others to listen to you so people can express what's going on for them and express what's going on in their head to as much as possible. That often creates a little bit of space for them to say, okay, like, almost like, thank, thank you for that. It's less busy in my head now. Now I can connect to you. And then also ref- 
set a context for what you're going to say that connects with something they're interested in or connected to so that they go, okay, not only am I ready to listen, but this actually has some kind of connection to something I'm interested in because then they have a reason to make an effort to listen to you rather than you having to kind of fight for the space in their head all the time. Okay, so so listen first in order to be listened to. Yes. Right. <laughs> the other the other thing that I know you, you major on a lot when it comes to the leadership conversation is this idea of commitment versus being right, um, yeah. which is something that really resonated with me. Could you could you explain more about that? Um yeah, it is kind of if you really want to put somebody in action around something that either needs to happen or you are committed to yourself to happen because you care about it, and then kind of how to get the other person to kind of step into action. And often, especially in my background, engineering, places where it's kind of lots of intellectual work, you work things out, you're trying to find the right answer, minimum risk, and then kind of putting that case in front of somebody else, kind of like, I have figured out the answer. I now know what needs to happen. And coming from that angle actually fires up the brain in resistance mode. You can see it as almost like the pain centers light up and fMRI scans. People just don't like it, especially if you come from the, like, personality-wise, a way of being that says, I'm right, kind of like, I have figured that kind of I'm almost positioning myself above you. It's not a powerful way to win an argument. You might get people who kind of back off and let you be right, but it doesn't produce powerful action as a result. However, if you meet somebody who has a personal connection to something and is committed and themselves are taking actions consistent with what you're asking the other person to get involved in, then that's attractive because it isn't about somebody being better than you or trying to push you to do something. It's more of an invitation to join something because it's inside the commitment of the person who makes the request. And then suddenly there's partnership, there is support. It's attractive and exciting. You might not win the argument, but at least people will usually walk away going like, wow, kind of that person is really committed to that. You might not have, they might not have the time to it, but they get considered in a whole different way, whether they want to join you and step up with you and be part in this with you. Hmm. And have you got an example of where you, you've seen that in action, where you've seen someone come from commitment in a way that's been really affected you and has been powerful for you? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of some of the more tangible places has been around safety because it's kind of it, it's an easy thing to connect to. I worked offshore for a while in my early career and witnessing the person on the platform who's in charge, the OIM, as they call them, offshore installation manager, not just talking safety because he wanted to look good in front of his bosses, but the fact that he was willing to make really, really tough decisions like stopping production, things that would lose money for the company, to make a point that certain things would be tolerated and certain things wouldn't because in his commitment to safety, there were lines that couldn't be crossed. And you got it. This is something that not only he is committed to, but I now have the power to 
take action inside of his commitment. I can stop things. I can flag things. And I know it will be listened to because he's interested and it's inside of his commitment. If it was somebody who's other places when people have just preached um, kind of safety, but get upset when you stop work because he's losing money, you go like, oh, I'm not sure. You're just saying it just to kind of doing the right thing, being right about it and being seen to be the good guy. But actually, when it comes down to it, I am not so sure anymore. And that stops me from acting consistent with that alleged safety commitment because I don't see the evidence. Hmm. And so for people perhaps who aren't, so if, so if people are going to take this on and and really dwell in what's, you know, what's my commitment, where can people start in order to get a sense of what they're committed to and, and, and express that in the way you describe Um couple of avenues because i know it's a it's an interesting inquiry to go into and i've been in the inquiry for decades and i still don't have a definitive answer and there are some things that i are clearly committed to but kind of what's important to me kind of you can take the biggest question what's important to me in life and get committed so absolutely i am committed to my kids kind of that was just something that landed in my a wonderful gift landing in my lap. And it's demonstrated to me kind of, I probably could say I've never been that committed in my life. Kind of that's the ultimate black and white example of what true commitment. I act consistently with wanting the best for my kids, whether I screw up or do bad things or good things kind of, but I do it inside of that commitment with my kids. Doesn't mean I always get it right. So that's kind of extreme commitment. And the other place to look beyond kind of asking what's important to me is if you notice you get upset about certain things, certain things that like kind of touch me quite deeply and kind of feels unjust. There's something and you go, okay, what is it that that flies in the face of that so clearly upsets me? And that's kind of how I got to my kind of deep care for and in some degree, I believe is part of my mission in life is kind of conflict resolution. Kind of, I have an itch to get right into the most thorny problems in the world, kind of because I, I notice how upsetting it is when I see people being at each other, when it's counterproductive, it destroys lives, and I can almost see by on the basis of the conversations they have against each other that there is a basis for coming together, and I find that hugely upsetting. So there's a, clearly a something in the background that arises out of being upset. Hmm. That's useful. So dwell on where you get upset and just think about what's important to me. I mean, that sounds, sounds simple, but I guess that's not an inquiry that people are, are naturally always in, right? Yeah, and it's, and it's a tough inquiry because it's sometimes really hard to see and often the most obvious kind of, oh, that's before I care about this. And you go like, well, why do I care about that? It's kind of, it's one of these. And we ask people who, work with us especially on the programs what's important to you in life at business etc and we ask it several times we ask it again and again to people wondering why we ask it so often because things shift and new things come up some things are permanent in life and other things circumstances change life changes and you discover new things or things you were committed to suddenly hasn't got that significance anymore because something has shifted and that's fine kind of you don't need to be kind of that is the thing in life and I'm stuck with that forever. Right. So, so we talked about listening. We talked about commitment. 
Is, is there anything else in your experience, any other important qualities or, or facets of, of leadership that's, that is important to explore? Um, yeah. I think one of the things kind of when you reflect on kind of almost like leaders versus leadership and kind of the leaders we often end up having an affinity to respecting is, I would assert, most often related to who they are as a leader and often which is consistent with who they are as a person rather than what they say and what they do. So this kind of cognizance or connection to who you are being as a leader. And you, you see it come out if you have had a conversation with somebody, whether it's an interview or you just met somebody at a conference, whatever you meet them, and somebody asks you, oh, you talked to so-and-so, how was that? Or who were they? People go, he was interesting. He was compelling. He was, we described in the sense of the quality of the person or the characteristics of the person rather than the content of the conversation. Even if a job interview candidate, when you're going to compare notes, you end up talking like that. So kind of the ability for a leader to reflect on who they are going to be in service of what they committed to. And actually, that's something you can consciously shape instead of just being driven by your, your fleeting thoughts and feelings in the moment, which is one thing. But if you really have to have something happen, you can actually connect yourself to who do I need to be? Who do I need to be for my people? Do I need to be Mr. Stability? Do I need to be Mr. Creativity? And who do I need to be for my family? And you can take it so extreme. Like somebody once asked me, who is Christmas in your home? Because who, if that person went away, Christmas wouldn't be the same anymore. Because there's often kind of, and I go like, oh, that's my sister. She, she is Christmas in our family when we get together. Kind of like, so who you are kind of is a, it's a very, very powerful kind of reference point as a leader rather than what do I need to say? What do I need to do? Because that's what really moves people. Hmm. I like it. Okay. And so, yeah. So what am I? Yeah. So asking yourself kind of a, a bleak question. So you could think about, yeah, who is Christmas in the workplace? I don't know who is. Who is safety? Yeah, who's stability? Who is uh, who is who, who is pioneer in my yeah. team? Who is yeah, yeah? Who is taskmaster? Who is who is leader? Who is explorer? Yeah, okay. And if you have big accountabilities, you really need to think carefully. Who do I need to be for the people I'm accountable to, and people are accountable to me for whatever to happen that I'm committed to happening? And that. And that to be something to keep coming back to. I mean, obviously, in in itself can change, but as for for a period and as a sense of a place to source from. Yeah, because there are some kind of meta levels to this, kind of which is I kind of I live in a world where I get a big kick out of kind of new things being possible. People seeing that they can do things and go after things beyond what they would normally consider. So being possibility for people is something that I often am and often find is a huge contribution. But then if I go into a meeting, especially if I find myself a little wavering, a bit worried about something, then who do I need to be in this meeting? Who do I need to be in this conversation with my kids? Kind of being up, upset 
and I go in and kind of I can have the react to it and be upset back because they I'm upset upset because that they are upset. Or I can go, okay, who do I need to be here? I need to be listening and caring so they can get off it, kind of so it can be circumstantial and in the moment that question to yourself as well as in life in general. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Useful. Let's so we've talked we've talked a lot about leadership there. Let's talk a little bit about Oddie as as coach. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things I I've really learned from you is this. I mean, we can start here and then we can broaden it out. This idea of of bloody nose consulting or bloody nose coaching. I, you know, when I think Oddie, I, th- I think I think of that phrase. Can you talk a bit more about that? And. Um, <laughs> Yes, maybe we should explain a little bit about what we mean by the expression. I do not punch people, first of all. <laughs> There's no physical contact involved in this. <laughs> no, but there's an element of kind of, I try to de- kind of develop a connection and a relationship with the other person where I either get a permission or feel that there's a level of permission where I can just, what can I say, give the proverbial slap to people. And but exactly how it comes across to me rather than trying to be nice. So they really see how something comes across. So I've had people go like, ow, that hurt. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> so it could be anything from pointing out that kind of how things land over here, kind of you come across like an absolutely arrogant buffoon, kind of when you say that. And kind of, so just not trying to be nice to the other person because that's not going to make the difference and having the courage to throw something back at them exactly as it lands over here. Not that it's true. It's just how it landed with me, but that's something I've found the risk I feel I'm taking with it has almost universally been well received, but it has two conditions. The other person, you need to have a relationship with the other person is absolutely confident that anything that comes from my mouth is in service of them. It isn't in a phase of a conversation where I'm trying to kind of show myself as being good enough, qualifying myself. It can't be about me in any sense, trying to be cool. or It's really, really have to have that level of permission. And sometimes that can come really quickly. And for other people, it takes a little bit more time before I really can throw it back kind of plainly versus trying to coach it in terms that are a bit more digestible. But uh, I do enjoy it too, actually. You know, it's very, very satisfying when somebody, because it usually has a massive effect, kind of people really kind of oof, get it. And it's like, wow, I didn't see that one coming. And shit, you probably have a point. <laughs> so you said almost universally, universally accepted. What's the other instances where you've, where you've, you've gone for the bloody nose and it's, it's not, because oh, yeah. there's something to, people can learn from? I was, I will, the person will remain anonymous, but uh, an HR director, he, he was an HR director in a company that was in the FTSE 10, probably. And we had a good relationship doing work in a few places in his organization, leadership work. And one day he sat me down and went, oh, gosh, kind of, life is tough. Kind of, this is happening over there and this is happening over there. And when I'm dealing with this group, this happens. And his life was just hard. And I just said, you know what? There's only one common denominator in all these things you tell me about, and that's you. I think it might have something to do with you. 
<laughs> which I kind of knew it did because I talked to others too. He talked to me for six months. <laughs> we did work with companies still, but uh, he was not going to have me around anymore. I did not basically care for him according to <laughs> the reflection I got back. Right. That reminds me of the, the saying, if you meet one a-hole in the day, uh, they're the a-hole. If you meet five a-holes in the day, you're the, you're the a-hole, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, there is unfortunately some truth in that. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah, we've talked about there where the, the bloody nose didn't work. You know, what, what's been your biggest turnaround that you've, you've experienced working with a client? Um, that my biggest turnaround is working with the client. Or biggest one. impact, yeah. Um, there is one client who has been with a couple of companies and we've worked together. This is more in, kind of on, in, in the coaching realm. But, uh, yeah, he made me almost uncomfortable because he said, like, only you, you and my dad are the two people who had the biggest impact in my life. He is uh, currently an HR director as well in a major company. And uh, it, that was... And you never know what, what's the conversation that's going to have something hit home, fundamentally changing something. Who knows? Sometimes it's hard to say. But for him, it was a conversation around kind of it's no longer about what you do in his world as an HR director. That is no longer relevant to your success and how you get judged. It is what you make happen, what you cause in the world. It doesn't matter if you sit with your feet on your desk. If you find a way of making things happen that is beyond what you possibly could do yourself, that's kind of now the level you operate at. Because he, he's a really good guy. He's a hard worker. He's had massive capacity to do stuff. And he's worked his way up by having all the capacity to get stuff done and dig, roll up his sleeves and kind of do it himself in, if necessary. And he couldn't see the fact that that was no longer what he was paid to do. Hmm. So suddenly he had an amazing effect on the organization because then he started just orchestrating pieces, putting people in motion, focusing and speaking and listening and what it was going to take to get others in action. And his impact in the organization just rocketed as a result of it. So that's kind of one, one example that kind of came back as a testament, which was kind of, a bit daunting, actually. I, I right. get a, I get a bit I get a bit scared when people say that. Like, oh, I need to be careful what I say to people. <laughs> Sometimes comes into my head. Right. Well, no, that's that, that's a great story. And you you make that distinction there about causing something to happen versus yeah. making something to happen. What, tell us more about that. Oh, the in many many careers and people kind of, especially in in corporate situations and entrepreneurs too, kind of the. The ability to succeed has often been founded on knowing best, being the quickest, the person who digs in and get things done. Then you become like a, a good person and want to get noticed when promotion comes up. You're a person that others want around you because you can make stuff happen. And actually that is limiting as a game yeah of course you need to do early in your career and as you build up you need experience and you need to get your hands dirty to really get a sense of what has things changed on that level but if you look from a perspective of leadership which after all isn't about seniority in an organization then 
kind of what is leadership and how kind of how do you get the biggest possible impact if you view yourself or somebody else as a leader. That's the ability to put things in motion around you as well as take partaking, of course, so that things can happen way beyond what you personally could even dream of doing yourself. So focusing on what you do is extremely lim limiting as a game. Absolutely valid in many careers and jobs. There's nothing wrong with it. But from a leadership perspective, that's an extreme limitation. So one way of speaking about it is causing something instead of doing something. And some people get uncomfortable with it because suddenly the relationship between what you did, which was probably a conversation with somebody or communication with somebody to put them in motion, and the outcome gets very tenuous. Cause and effect isn't necessarily clear anymore, or it might not be cause and effect. It can be kind of, you might have lots of pieces moving and others might get even get credit for what happens. But having the courage to take that role is almost required from a leader who wants to operate on a high level. And especially if you're out to make something happen that's beyond what you already know how to do. Kind of, some people, have the, the courage to take on a game that says I'm going to have something happen and I don't, don't even know. I couldn't even possibly do it myself and I couldn't even tell people what to do. Then you're absolutely dependent on causing something beyond your own ability to do stuff. And that's often how people learn that game by committing to something beyond what they know how to do, because that's the only option they have left. And then, right. And then you basically have just have to step into it if you really, really mean it. If you are committed, well, let's step into that murky waters and learn as we go along what works and doesn't work. Right. And what was an example of that then when someone stepping into that role and, and, and causing something? Um, you've seen. Yeah, it's kind of the most tangible is when you work on a kind of work on capital project where it's clear that all the expertise in the room, knowing how to build things effectively, kind of, I used to work in the oil industry and had lots of clients, have lots of, or had lots of clients until the downturn, <laughs> less now, but capital projects is the bread and butter of the exploration and production industry. And often you knew what's in the ground. You had a sense of how much it was going to be worth when you got it out of the ground and could sell it. And all the engineers in the room couldn't see how they could build something fast enough and cheap enough to make it pay back. But you kind of knew that it should be possible. It's absolutely possible. So then flipping the game, what we then do is saying, okay, this is not going to be economically viable unless you halve the cost is one of the more extreme games. You know, what would that take? And then suddenly you say, okay, that's a whole different conversation than we now had. And providing leadership in that context, which is around facing up to those things that kind of that could never happen because the way we're organized, because of this and because of that. Okay, now are you willing to take on that as a leader if that's what's needed to really be able to get this as an economically viable project? Mm. And so because it's tangible, it's stuff, and it's incredible because suddenly. If and only if the person who's accountable for it is committed to making it happen, not as a thought experiment, then kind of people are cautious with ideas that they want don't look stupid. But if somebody says, no, actually, I'm signing up for having this happen, 
And I realize I don't have the answers. I realize we might not have the answers at this point in time, but I'm hanging my hat on that peg and say, that is going to happen. And then suddenly people would go, well, I was thinking about this, but it was kind of out, out left field too much. And I would look potentially look stupid, but what if we did this? What if it could take on that? And I do know this crazy guy that works for this company down on the South Coast that had this kind of says he invented something new about that kind of, then suddenly all this comes into play and a whole new thing opens up, but it takes not just kind of a willingness to consider it, but it takes commitment for people to know that there's a safe space to throw in all those things that could have been on the table already, but kind of wasn't the accepted way of doing things and wasn't the normal process to follow when the results were going to be delivered. Okay. Yeah. So stepping into what on the face of it seems impossible or at least extremely unlikely that it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it is because it has to be in the back of your mind. It has to be inside that world of at least should be possible. Right. If it truly lives for you as impossible, then it just becomes a weird and strange conversation kind of going completely out of, out of, out of field doesn't usually produce results. It needs to have that suspicion at least that is possible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. Absolutely should be possible. And it's kind of annoying because then you know somebody else could do it if you don't do it. So uh, right. reinvent your own business before somebody else does. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You see, again and again, which is annoying to see, you see smaller companies buying assets off bigger companies that the bigger companies find economically hard to make sense of and the small companies make beautiful business out of them. But there's so, it's demonstrated so many times, especially big companies have a lot to gain by basically throwing their rule book out and thinking again, entrepreneurship, kind of getting these little enterprises started up inside that, that can break the rules just to demonstrate actually what the value is inside that could be had if people thought again. Right. Right. So yeah, we've talked uh, we've talked a lot there about causing causing things to happen and bloody nose consult co- bloody nose consulting or bloody nose coaching. Yeah. Um, when when do you wake walk away from clients? When when do you when do you say no? Nah, this isn't going to work. You know what? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had. What can I say? I have walked away too late sometimes. <laughs> I have to admit. Um, one thing to look out for that I've learned the hard way is. If I suddenly realize I'm the one carrying the commitment to the outcome that we're working on versus the client, sometimes when they start looking to me to kind of keep things alive and be the source and inspiration for what needs to happen, that's dangerous because kind of the, the, per, the client or the, the organization we work with needs to be inside of their commitment that I help them make possible. If I carry the commitment, then when I walk out the door, the commitment is outside the door. Kind of that is not powerful. So that's one thing to really, really look out for. And on a more granular level, one other thing I've learned is if you really want to step into the space of of having something happen that is, some people talk about a breakthrough, something extraordinary, something beyond what would usually happen, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to require something. And part of the expertise 
that I bring and you bring and others bring is kind of we have a sense of what it's going to take to shift the conversations, to open up those spaces that need to be explored. And if that isn't kind of, if the client isn't willing to do that, then it might be time to walk away. So very typically kind of certain conversations are going to take time. You need to be in it and in it deep and wrestle with things. And it's going to take kind of got eight people in the room. It's going to take a day. And then when it comes but we have so many other things we need to talk about. We can give you two hours in the morning. Don't do it. <laughs> it's one of these things kind of needs to happen properly because otherwise it just becomes an interesting conceptual conversation that doesn't really change the game. They will learn things. We can look at dynamics. We can do things that are useful to them. But if it's all about having a certain outcome happen that we signed up to together, then if the, if the opportunity to create the environment it needs isn't there then you're not going to have it happen and uh, i have kind of one client where basically they saw that they had the courage to say it before i had the courage to say it even though i'd seen it but i was so keen to not give up because i wanted the outcome to be there but we never managed to take enough of a step back to say okay what's that really going to take of time and commitment and I kept just battling with the little snippets I got of opportunity. And I could see it that I didn't have the courage to tell the client that they would be better served by not spending the money working with me. And uh, they said it to me first, which was extremely humbling. <laughs> they recognized that they didn't have enough commitment themselves to make the best of what you had to offer. Yeah, they basically, like basically it wasn't worth working with me because kind of we didn't take the full step of what it was going to take. So we ended up spending time together that wasn't resulting in the outcomes we were interested in. And either they had to face up to the fact that they weren't going to do what it's going to take to produce the outcomes or kind of we would have to make space for having the conversations that were really going to shift it. And kind of, so in the end, we just drifted in the middle and we were spending time together, but not enough to get the outcome. So this paid for time without getting outcomes, which is a complete waste. Mm. And I, had the courage to stand up because I so wanted it to be to, to change and I never found the way to change it so yeah good on them they called it before me <laughs> and, and I guess that's a lot that's a great lesson for a lot of people out here who are coaches themselves or aspiring to be coaches is 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 some is find the courage to call it when you sense your your client hasn't hasn't got the commitment for it to work yeah it is because in the end kind of my own satisfaction, if anything, is around the difference I make. And if I end up kind of doing stuff without getting results, I get demotivated. The other person spend, wastes money. And I'm happy to have a coffee with them. We don't need to pay for that. If that's all we do together is have a conversation that doesn't kind of lead to anything, but it's a nice time together, then let's do it over coffee instead. Right, 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 right. So just switch it to a coffee relationship rather than a coaching yeah. one if, if, if it's not there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I know that another project that close to your heart, where where you're the leader or one of the leaders, is uh, your work with Gaffy. Um, oh, can gosh, you yes. talk more about that. In oh, I, before I blabber on for two hours, kind of anything in particular. <laughs> well, what what's Gaffy as an organisation? Uh, what's what's its mission? What's your okay. role in it? You know, and what are you learning about about leadership in in, in that context? Is um, okay. Yeah. Um, Gaffy, or first of all, it's an 
acronym for Global Action Fund for Fungal Infections. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically focused on bringing, number one, bringing the world's attention to the fact that fungal disease is killing a lot of people and it hasn't really registered many places. The impact it has, it kills half the AIDS patients that die, die from fungal infections, most are TB patients. And in Holland, more people die from fungal infections than bacterial infections. Some of the most virulent and hard to treat hospital kind of mass infections are fungal now, and it's spread from Africa up in the space of a few years, coming storming up Europe towards our shores as well. And it's, and fungus everywhere, just like bacteria. And so one is to get people's attention on it. And the other side of it, which is more practical, is the fact that there are a whole suite of treatments for, pe for, for people who get fungal infections. I'm not talking about like funky toenails and things, but things to get in your lung, asthmatic things, things that kind of can be debilitating, getting, making you blind or giving you asthma-type diseases and die from. We have cheap generic drugs, but because many countries don't diagnose it or have no method of cheaply diagnosing it or even having the medical expertise to recognize it, there is no market for these drugs so they don't get into the country. So our mission is, number one, to get people aware of it, be able to recognize when it might be a fungal infection, enable them to diagnose it so that then the demand for the drugs open up and drug companies will get the drugs in. And these are kind of from Indian over-the-counter producers. It's not necessarily expensive drugs under patent regulations. And it's kind of... it's. It's heartbreaking to see that people are dying in like millions from this when there are cheap drugs available that even people in developing countries, African countries, for example, Southeast Asian countries can afford. So one of our first projects that's about to kick off is kind of working with the Jap Japanese uh, authorities to install hardware in Kenya, scanners across all the hospitals, fiber optic network and reference labs, educating 6,000 health professionals to recognize fungal disease and then working, supporting the drug companies to get permission to put it in to the market and get kind of that going and then rolling over probably Uganda next. The pilot project in Guatemala has already shown that from thinking there was no fungal disease, actually more than half the patients that were treated by antibiotics actually have fungal disease and it started breeding antibiotic resistance, which is a huge problem in the world. And that kind of escalating problem can be toned down massively if people just be given fungal drugs when they have fungal disease because it looked like a bacterial disease when it wasn't. And so this is also an education problem with doctors not not being able to differentiate between fungal and bacterial. Yeah, in many, many countries, kind of people, the only relationship they have to fungal disease is things they can see on the skin and on toenails. So it's kind of, with skin doctors, I don't speak medical speak, uh, what's it called? <laughs> and that's, so that comes to why I'm part of this. It's a, an organization that is kind of started and driven by people with extreme deep medical knowledge, kind of the world experts in this area, especially a guy called Professor David Denning. And kind of the ability to connect with the world outside the medical profession, which has proven hard enough to engage the medical profession is kind of people like me and needed for two things. One is to help them speak and have a dialogue with a world 
outside, both corporate world, to support this. And it probably is not going to be a big public campaign because it's hard because people don't have much of a relationship to this. It's not like you don't want to put up the pictures all over posters and make people go, yee, because it looks ugly. So this, but so engaging with the world, and then we need to build a sustainable organization around this because it's way too personality dependent. It's a young organization, five years, so it's absolutely appropriate. It's often kind of one soul. So, who, so here you go again. Who is Gaffy? Not what is Gaffy. Who is Gaffy? Currently, it is David Denning, Doctor David Denning. Who is Gaffy? Right, right. Who is Chris? Who is Gaffy? Yeah. And we need to turn it into something that isn't depending on him as a personality that can actually function, have effective operations in the field, have a conversation out there that is sustained in a whole different way. So that's a mega challenge these days. And one of the prime purposes why I'm involved, because I do not contribute to the medical challenges of this charity. That's not my focus. And and why the particular interest in I mean of all the charities you could give your time to why the particular interest in in this one? Um, gosh, it's like coincidences in life. Two things just happened to intersect at a key moment in time. Kind of, I kind of a lady called Anne Chateau who was part of First Human for for a while does a great women's program. Um, as we were conducting one of those programs, she said, "I've been approached by." the sister of a guy called David Denning, who's having a launch of a charity in town. And they right now, they just want to get it out. They were in attention. So you want to come along? And I went like, sure, fine. So I went along. And then at the same time, okay, I'm going to lean into the camera. This might work or may not work. Some people can see I have like yeah. white splodges here and, and brown there. And that was right. prominent before. So it, the suspect was a fungal infection right, on my skin, which it turned out not to be. It's a vitiligo which is an autoimmune kind of reaction to something. There you go. I don't even know my own stuff properly. So that's a little medical I am. But yeah, so I had this, I was in this kind of investigation of kind of what's happening to my skin and why do I have these white things happening on my body? And they, I meet these guys who are fungal experts. So we start talking and me out of self-interest and also interest in what they were doing because the story was interesting. And then I just got basically sucked in. Uh, so can you help us with one of our strategic meetings? We need to think. We need somebody to help us shape the conversation, which I did. And then after a while, they probably realized that having me on the inside was probably smarter than asking me to come as an external person to support them. So things just unfolded. It's life sometimes. Just the universe seems to conspire in certain ways. And if somebody asked me, what charity do you want to be involved in, in general terms, I probably wouldn't have picked this at all, but it just so happened that I sailed up and then the more I learned, the more I feel, okay, here and there's nobody else that we know of in the world that has a global view on this. You know, we're the only organization that impact studies across more than a hundred countries to see what's actually going out in the world. And it's making the World Health Organization almost fall backwards. And suddenly from not having anybody in the whole World Health Organization even thinking about fungal disease to, wow, we really need to. The Center for Disease Control in the U.S. looks at the Guatemala project and go, oh, explicit terms, kind of, we really need to do something. How can we take your learning? And we want us to deal with this on the doorstep in Central America. So, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, 
something that kind of requires attention and it's neglected. So now I'm very pleased I'm part of it. Right. Right. Well, that sounds like it's going to make a a big impact. And yeah, and it's opened my eyes. I didn't realize that millions of people suffering from fungal infections. I'm sure most people don't realize that. It seems like a huge blind spot for society. Yeah. And it's, and it's so hard. It's not spotable. The the only people who kind of experience this often people who've had, people doing chemotherapy after cancer and stuff, and suddenly the immune system is sufficiently ex- suppressed and it looks terrible when people get that, when they have like chemo and things. But otherwise, unless you have a personal encounter with it, it's completely kind of off the radar screen. Right, right. Okay, um, well, we're getting close towards uh, the, the end of this this conversation. Um, yeah. a, couple of, a couple of closing questions. Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old body self <laughs> that yeah that chestnut and <laughs> um, yeah now i go like why couldn't you have told me about this question before we started talking then i would have had a chance to say something remotely profound and <laughs> um, i would probably say you know when this is reflects on who i was rather than generic kind of don't, stop being the good guy Stop trying to kind of be kind of the one who everybody wants to have around just because you're the good guy, the helpful guy. Kind of have the courage to explore for yourself kind of actually what is it that I want to do, get involved in, go after, and at least give yourself the choice. Don't just be driven to kind of please the boss, do well, nice meritocracy where I am opportunities will come if i do good work yeah they do but kind of life will be different when you grow up if at least you give yourself a chance to say kind of if i almost like if i didn't need to make money what would i do if i had all the money in the world what would i spend my time on what am i interested on and i'm not talking about just lying on the beach kind of what would i get what's the difference i want to make in the world and look hard at it and then make some choices can still choose not to do it but i never even thought in those terms and i think my life would probably be different if i had taken that opportunity to do it very good and final question then um so for you what does being human mean being human um i think it's quite kind of it's it's hum, it's kind of humility as of kind of dealing with oneself and others as things occur for them as things are kind of it's so easy to step into this world that oh it shouldn't be or i wish that wasn't the case or someone's upset and you go like you shouldn't be upset no not actually kind of just getting connected to what's actually going on and also the aspect that's important to that is a human is only human in relationship to others is my view. And I'm not the only one saying things like this, but someone who, if you grow up in a dark cave, kind of that's almost not being human. I am human and I am who I am as a human because of the relationships I have with the people around me. Kind of so kind of being human is an interconnected phenomenon an interconnected concept. It isn't about isolated individuals. 
And I think that's something that is important in the world. Kind of you exist in your relationship with others and others are the relationship they have with others again. So when you really start talking to people and find out how they connect to the world, that's who they are as a human being. It isn't just an isolated physical entity sitting there. Right. And that takes us right back to the start of this conversation. When we, one of the first things we talked about was that importance of connecting for, for leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And the best place to find out more about you and your work is, is firsthuman.com. Yes, absolutely. Which is an evolving story. And anybody who wants to be part of that conversation, just as in any way at all, are extremely welcome to be so as that kind of story of First Human expands. Fabulous. Odi Ashheim, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Very welcome. Thank you.